welcome, welcome back to the BMJ Innovations Podcast. I'm Dr. Helen Serrana, one of the Associate Editors at BMJ Innovations, and I'm your host. We hope you'll subscribe, like and review the podcast wherever you are listening to it and do share on your own networks because we'd like as many people to hear it as possible. BMJ Innovations is grateful to WISH, the World Innovation Summit for Health, for making this podcast series possible. Coming up today, it's the last in our series on leaders in innovation, and we're talking to Rajesh Agarwal. He talks to me about his very early start in the world of surgery, but also his passion for excellent research and how he has learned through his experience in the UK and the US that getting research into practice is not easy. He also tells me about the importance of partnerships between health systems and innovators, and we discuss courage, humility and data, key topics for any innovator. And we start at the very beginning of his career. It's interesting, I actually saw my first operation when I was four years old. That's pretty young. My father is now retired, was a community obstetrician and gynaecologist. And he was at home, he was on call, and he needed to go in to do an emergency C-section. I was at home and my mom and my sister were, were out somewhere. So he had to take me with him. So I remember it, it's probably my earliest memory of going to the hospital. And he put me next to one of the nurses and it was all very clean and clinical, I guess. And then I think about halfway through, she said, do you want to see what your dad's doing? I was like, yeah, why not? So she lifted me up. I could see through the window and there was my dad. And I was like, wow, that's a lot of people and they're doing something really important. I want to do that. And that was just so important that that's the only career that I wanted was to be a doctor and not even just to be a doctor, but to be in the operating room. The the passion for me around being a surgeon was that You can fix things. And I know that tablets and other treatments can fix things, but it's not so explicit where someone comes in with a problem, you literally cut it out and fix it, and they wake up and they don't have that problem anymore. So that kind of reward piece and being able to do something was kind of my my first foray into why I love medicine and surgery. And then the second piece of it was really over 20 years ago when I was asked If I wanted to do research as a young, hungry senior house officer in London, I said, absolutely. And I remember the surgeon, Mr. Russell, very well-known pancreatic surgeon, thought for a moment. He said, ah, yes, I know a very good friend of mine, Aradazi, he's just bought the first Da Vinci robot at St. Mary's Hospital. And I know he's looking to do some research with it. Why don't you go and talk to him? And two weeks later, I talked to Ara and he said, when can you start? And this was the period where literally within a couple of weeks of me starting research, I was like, wow, here is the creativity. Here is the opportunity to try and succeed, fail, build. And I completely lapped it up. And my focus was very much around virtual reality and simulation technologies. And we worked with the Royal College. We worked with uh, other universities as well, really across the world. At the time you were doing your PhD, there wasn't a, innovation wasn't really used with a capital letter as part of a job title anywhere, yeah. right? It was, what, but right. what you were doing, 
was incredibly innovative. Right. So just can you tell me what the atmosphere was like in that unit, who who you were collaborating with? Absolutely. It was it was unique. And I think probably in terms of academic departments of surgery, it's still fairly um, unique. And the uniqueness was this collaborative approach from outside of what we call traditional medicine. I spent most of my time working with computer scientists that were focused on motion tracking, so hand signature analysis using hidden Markov models, which I learned all about artificial neural networks. I also spent a lot of time working with leaders in patient safety. And these were cognitive psychologists who really had done a lot of experimental psychology works and then were brought in to think through the operating team the team in the ward. What are the interactions? What do distractions mean? What what does situational awareness mean? And again, th- this is all kind of business speak now around organizational leadership and, and so forth. So, and then we also worked with clinical educators. So a chap called Roger Kneebone, who had trained as a surgeon, but was very much focused in the science of education. And bringing those different groups together was was a masterstroke of brilliantness. And I'll say it was a masterstroke of brilliantness for the department and the work we did. But for me personally, because even to this day, I talk about the way to improve healthcare is to improve it from the outside in rather than from the inside in. We've tried to do that for over 100 years and not been very successful at that. Do you think that takes a certain amount of humility to step back and ask other people into your area? It's interesting you use that word. I agree with you, but it also takes a lot of courage. I'll tell you a a, a funny story. I remember when I was going to start my research and really focus around um, education and technology. One of the senior surgeons that I was working with, I said, what are you going to be doing over the next few years? I said, well, I'm going to be working around education and technology, and I'm going to do a PhD in that. And he said to me, I don't know what's more dangerous, a surgeon who wants to do education research or a surgeon who has a PhD. <laughs> and Not exactly I, encouraging. You know, no, exactly. And that's what I mean. So I you know, had to be brave and say, no, actually, that's what I'm going to do because this is what I really um, believe in. So I think, yes, the, the humility, I think it's a, re- it's a word I wouldn't have chosen, but it's a really important word that we as surgeons or we as doctors don't know how to do everything in the best way. But then there's also that bucking the trend of having that courage, bravery to say, well, we're going to make yeah, this work. Yeah. So sort of moving on to the what, what you did, next after that a lot of your your next roles were around trying to implement some of the things you'd learned especially around simulation training for surgeons maybe just talk talk us through where you went and what you did yeah so my research was very much around how do we use simulation and the, the easiest analogy is the airline industry it's not a good analogy but the easiest one is that they use simulators and so their pilots can train on the ground and be perfect when they get up in the air. And there's a concept in the airline industry called the transfer effectiveness ratio. And what that means is that every hour spent on a simulator on the ground, a $7 million simulator, saves 30 minutes of training up in the air. That gives you a transfer effectiveness ratio of 0.5. And then I applied my data into that equation. And what I found was that the transfer effectiveness ratio for the um, study I'd done 
on virtual reality simulation for laparoscopic cholecystectomy to then take it to a clinical setting was 2.28. So over four times as effective as an airline simulator. And I remember sitting back in my chair thinking, wow, Raj, this is going to make you famous. Being very honest, that's what I thought. I was like, we have shown here that this simulator is four times as effective as the flight simulators that every pilot trains on and is credentialed on. I thought this was going to change practice almost overnight. Wrote the paper up, you know, presented it, published it, um, won a lot of awards for it. And not much changed. I was like, hang on. And I started talking to the companies. I said, like, you've got this on your website. You're using it in kind of corporate materials. Why aren't people buying this stuff? And... Then I spoke to Ira about it. He said, yeah, Raj, there needs to be a business model to prove this out. The simulator costs $100,000. What's the return on investment of that? That's what needs to happen. And you need real world evidence. I was like, huh. And the business world was a complete haze to me. Didn't really know much about it. And what I realized again very quickly was that you didn't actually have to be a doctor, a clinician, or even work in a hospital to be really passionate about healthcare to be really driven to improve healthcare for providers and patients. And we started working with some very small companies um, out of Sweden, um, Norway, five, six people um, that really wanted to improve the training from a virtual reality perspective through to larger companies um, like Boston Scientific, Tyco Healthcare, um, Ethicon Endosurgery. And I met a bunch of executives from those companies who quite frankly, were so passionate. Everyone had a story about why they were interested, more than interested, why they were driven to impact healthcare. I remember saying, kind of jokingly at a a dinner when we were um, out with folks from companies is, you can't do what you want to do without me, and I can't do what I want to do without you. And that's just a very simple way of thinking about partnerships between academic health centers and corporate, you know, commercial um, entities. And I completed my training at Imperial. I'd become a senior lecturer um, at Imperial. And, you know, I had the NIHR Clinician Scientist Award. And I, um, I decided to jack all that in and move country to America because I thought that's where the innovation really gets implemented. That's where the financing is. That's where the technology is. And so I, on a pretty intelligent whim, but still on a whim, said, let's go and figure it out. So just going back to thinking about simulation as a the thing that mm. you, you started on your journey with maybe doing your research, is it fair to say that what you, what you ended up doing at Jefferson is part of that story or it feels a bit different? Where is simulation now really valuable and where is it a stepping stone to something else? Yeah. So in in terms of where simulation is really valuable right now, we haven't figured that out in in healthcare. And I know a ton of VR companies and other types of simulation companies, medical education companies that are still challenged to be successful. And I say to them and I say to their CEOs, I was like, I really want you to be successful because I haven't managed to figure it out. And, you know, that business model piece. That's, that's really hard. Where is the, the business model that people are going to pay to train and to retrain and credential? 
we're still doing that in in healthcare kind of on the job yeah right or in the clinical environment right it hasn't really moved the needle uh, that much and then for me personally i would say i have leveraged simulation as a subject area that's enabled me to develop kind of my construct for how clinicians, scientists, technologists, and business people work together to improve healthcare. And my focus very much now is on what's called digital health. And it's very disheartening for me that, you know, we're still not there from a, it's not even simulation from a medical education perspective. There's a company that is kind of taking the Khan Academy approach to medical education. And they're probably doing the best right now. Um, is that osmosis? Uh, in term- yes, osmosis. Yes, yeah. They're probably doing the best right now in terms of kind of that education piece. But even them, and I've spoken to them a number of times, I said, this is a really tough business to be in, right? Versus a business where if you can, through digital technologies, digital care pathways, improve the outcomes of maternal care, of behavioral health, of diabetes care, there is a real ROI there. And so that is the area that I'm focused on now. And really my my current role since I left Jefferson is with a company called Panda Health, where what we are doing is building a digital health marketplace, not dissimilar to an Amazon type marketplace, but the buyers are health systems that want to buy digital health technologies. And the people selling are those companies that are selling to health systems. And the challenge here is that it's a very long, arduous process. It can take 12 to 18 months to close a um, a sale between a digital health company and a health system. And the reason for that is that every health system has a slightly different way of wanting to buy technology and every vendor has a slightly different way of wanting to sell technology. And so what this company Panda is doing is really to organize and standardize that approach from shopping and sourcing, from um, technical evaluation, from procurement and contracting, and even to contract management so that this can then be done in three months rather than 12 to 18 months, which is less pain, both from a time and cost perspective. And and so just thinking about sort of what you're doing now in terms of digital health is it's, it's a very mm. broad term a lot of people who are the cl- early clinical innovators or current clinical innovators are people with a an exciting idea for a gadget and they they may well mm-hmm. be people who've gone into surgery it seems that the world of innovation has moved more into the data space would you would you say that's correct or yeah yeah absolutely i was actually talking to a ceo yesterday and um, he's had three companies that are all data companies in the you know, non-healthcare world. And I said to him, I said, why healthcare? He said, because healthcare needs people like me. I said, absolutely. I want to be very clear on this, that there was a partnership announced between Google Health and HCA Healthcare here in um, the US, which is one of the largest health systems in the US. And there's been a lot of other deals, whether it's with Google or Microsoft or other big tech companies around data and data from healthcare systems. And I'm somewhat frustrated about those deals because it's really about monetizing data. My area of focus is how do we use data to actually become a learning healthcare system? Whether that system is a Jefferson, a 
Pennsylvania healthcare state or the entire US or the entire National Health Service, right? So it's about really collecting the data of patient flow, patient outcomes, and then acting on that data to say, these are the activities that we think are going to make it better. And then recollecting that data and say, did it actually achieve that aim? So that, in its simplest form, is a learning healthcare system. So it is a data play. But the key difference here, and I say this to a lot of innovators as well, is that the data is here to improve the core offering. The data is not here to sell, right? So if I'm developing a data aggregation platform for a suite of 50 operating rooms, right? I will collect all that data, put it together, mine it, and develop insights from that. Those insights must enable me to improve something in those 50 operating rooms, right? If they don't, then it's just data, right? It's about the insights which are then clinically and operationally and financially valid. And there's a lot of work around that, certainly in the US, around insurance companies and value-based care. So, you know, we were doing this back in the UK, you know, 30 years ago around every GP has a list of 2,000 patients. You get paid X number of pounds per patient. Now you've got to manage their care, right? And it was a very tough job. Still is a very tough job for GPs. But imagine if you could have all of that data to know that this patient is really not doing well on managing their chronic diabetes, right? And rather than wait for them to get into a diabetic ketoacidosis and then be admitted to the hospital and then the intensive care unit, we can do something ahead of time, right? Um, so that's how I see the, the data play really work from a clinical and operational and then ultimately a financial perspective. And I'm somewhat dismayed by a lot of these big tech firms acquiring data to sell it. Yeah, yeah. You've obviously published a huge amount of work throughout your career <laughs> and it's helped you you and help you do what you need to do. A lot of people would see the process of getting something published th through traditional routes of academia, slow, boring, difficult, and, and in some ways a break yeah. on what they want to do as an innovator. Can you persuade them otherwise? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. My first paper, when I was at Imperial, I published a few other papers, but my first paper, when I really would say I started my academic journey, was um, submitted to the British Journal of Surgery. This was in the year 2002, I think. I had to print out 12 copies, put them in an envelope, and send them to the British Journal of Surgery. And about three months later, I got one of those copies back with handwritten notes and a cover letter, and then I would have to re-edit it and then send it back again. So let me tell all those folks that are out there listening, it's not as slow as it used to be, all right? <laughs> now you get your responses back in days, right? If not a few weeks. The second piece I would say is, and it's a really important point that you've surfaced um, here, Helen, is in order to do not just good, but responsible innovation, it needs to be underpinned in the highest levels of science. I spent a lot of time learning how to do science when I was doing my PhD and teaching many of my students, master students, PhD students, how to do science. And 
to learn how to do your own statistics. And everybody, well, there's someone else who can do them for us. But if that person does it for you, you don't understand it. And they don't understand the clinical significance or the operational significance of your work. So learn how to do it yourself, right? And so with that, I think the, the scientific training to be a responsible clinician innovator is so important. And then the second piece of it is how do we enable clinician scientists to think more about innovation? I think there's a lot of us talking about that. But I think there's fewer of us talking about how do we enable industry, the technology uh, folks, to learn how to do responsible science and not just publish a paper and get it published and then use it in their corporate marketing. And I think if we can, as BMJ Innovations, do both of those and bring those groups together, then I think we're going to do really, really well for the whole world of healthcare innovation. What would you say to people who are looking at, at medical careers at any stage, either before they start one or at the very early stages or even in the middle of their careers? What would you, what would you say to those people about innovation and, and, and how, they can, how they, they can change as, as people in their careers? My best piece of advice to anyone who's working in healthcare right now is, is two things. One is, do you enjoy the people you're around? Because we spend most of our waking hours with people at work, not with our family and friends. Do they inspire you? Do they drive you? Do you have fun conversations with them? Right. And the second thing is, do you think you're having impact? And that's really what's driven my career is I've wanted to be around really hardworking, really intelligent, really committed, passionate driven people that want to transform healthcare. And I've had that privilege, but I've also sorted out. And I've been brave to, to go outside of the, uh, the standard lines to be able to do that. But I've also done that in a manner that says, what's the impact that I, Raj Agarwal, can have as a, as a professional and then at a societal level? And I know that sounds very grandiose, but you bake that down to what did I get done today and who did I have fun with today? And what does tomorrow look like? And if you are repeating many days, many weeks, and you're not having fun and you're not really feeling like you're doing much for you as an individual, for you as a professional, for you from a societal perspective, then it might be time to rethink what you're doing and where you're at. We're so grateful to Raj for his time and we hope you enjoyed the interview. There are links to some of the organisations and people he mentioned in the show notes. So that was the last in our first series of the podcast. We hope you have enjoyed hearing the stories over the last five weeks. Please share with friends, colleagues and students and like, subscribe and review. It will give more people a chance to hear these stories and learn from them. And if you are subscribed, you'll get to hear the next series coming in the new year. In the meantime, please get in touch with your feedback and ideas. BMJ Innovations is grateful to the World Innovation Summit for Health for making this series possible. It was produced and presented by me, Helen Serrana, for BMJ Innovations and is editorially independent. If you have any questions or comments, do get in touch via social media or info.innovations at bmj.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.